You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. thoughts on Superman Lives if you were to if you're, you think back about it now what do you, how do you feel about it why are you trying to depress me so much does any anybody got any cyanide or anything I can take six more months before we see Ben Affleck in the bat suit but you can get an early look at a story of a Superman that might have lived in the 90s Superman actually died and it was you know, it was probably for the best that he died because they'd given him a mullet as well. We put the rights together. Kevin Smith came in with a really great take. I'm going to write Superman. This is, this is f***ed up. Tim came in shortly thereafter. I always felt like I was an alien, so I think a lot of people do. And someone who is wanting to fit in, wants to connect, and at the same time feels this enormous burden to protect. Thematically, the big thing for Tim was that Superman was an alien. We wanted to do something that we hadn't seen before without it being ridiculous. I think that the, the, the regenerative suit would have been like something no one's ever seen before. I'll never attempt again. Now when you think about it, if somebody was like, would you like to see a Nick Cage Superman movie? I'd be like, F- and yes. Then watching Nick Cage in an outfit land, it was kind of like, whoa, there's Superman, the, the, the Nick Cage version. He's so incredibly overly powerful. I liked that Tim Burton was going to take all of those powers away. There was going to be a cameo by Batman. Brainiac was going to be the villain in the movie. The uh, Superman Doomsday battle in the uh, subway, I think it was underground. We were doing a lot of research with schools of fish and how they turn, or birds in the air, how they turn in space. Chris Rock came into work one day and dog and was like, guess who's playing Jimmy Olsen? I remember him sort of complaining about making superhero movies. He compared it to Chinese water torture. If we had been able to strip through all of this sort of chaos, I think we could have had an interesting movie. It's a movie I'd still like to see. Plus, I would have been able to do a lot of cool monsters. It's uh, uncovering the past. I love it. It's kind of haunted me in a way, you know, the, the what if of it. It's the one costume I've never gotten to really make that I've always thought would have been, like, amazing. The death of Superman lives. What happened? You're going to find out. Kevin Smith's going to help tell it. I got involved. That's what happened. And then it died. It was truly the death of Superman. Welcome to a special episode of The Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Rob St. Mary is searching for his home planet this week. Instead, joining me is friend of the show, Mr. Chris Cummins. Hello, it's great to be back. We're going to be talking about The Death of Superman Lives, What Happened Today. Kind of an unwieldy title, but it's a great documentary about a failed project, the creative process, and an enormous ego. Or maybe a couple egos, I'm not sure. Chris, are you a Superman fan? I'm not the uh, I'm not the biggest fan of the Superman comics, but I am a fan of like uh, the Superman films. Uh, obviously, Superman and Superman Two are my favorite, the Christopher Reeve films. 
Uh, but I do have a soft spot for elements of three and four, uh, as well as uh, I actually liked Man of Steel. So there you go. And Superman Returns, I mean, it was just kind of a nothing picture, but it wasn't uh, Brandon Ruth's fault. No, definitely not his fault. I can, I would never blame him. I thought he made a fantastic he Superman. Yeah, yeah, I wish he was in a better movie. And you know what? I had no problem with this costume either. No, absolutely not. I mean, that's kind of you know, it's very traditional, but it was it was kind of what I wanted. Like it, the the problem with that movie uh, is that it was a bit too affectionate for Richard Donner's work. And I mean, look, you know, I, I really can't fault it too much for that. The Richard Donner Superman and the God, we could we could spend an entire hour just talking about the whole history of Superman yeah, too. Yeah, which is crazy. And there have been so many now. You know, there's the regular cut. There's the longer version of it that you could get for a while that was showing on ABC back when I was a kid and you're probably a little kid. And then they came out with the Donner cut of it, and then the fan editors so kind of took edits. over. Yeah. Oh my god, it so is crazy. Yeah. And then there's a uh, there's one <laughs> there's one fan edit that tries to uh, cut two, three, and four together, which is kind of insane. I've seen the three and four. I've yeah. never seen two, three, and four. Yeah. That's nuts. Maybe I'm confusing the two. Some of the two fan edits I have. Because uh, as as Mike knows, and as the audience may not know, is I'm a big big supporter of fan edits. I would love to come on here and just talk about fan edits with you sometime, Mike. But that's a uh, that's a that's another aside. But possibly a uh, episode down the line. Well, whenever we're talking about a movie in particular, where I was trying to find those fan yeah. edits and see if there's any merit to them. Of course, you know, one of our first episodes out of the gate was Dune, yes. yeah. which to me is saved by some of the fan edits. I mean, Dune itself as the original film, which was really weird. I just recently saw Dune projected on the big screen recently in Detroit, and it was not seeing the original version of it again because i'm so used to the fan edits i'm so used to the tv cuts of it so it's like hey where's jamas and those kids and the the fight and all this yeah you really (laughs) turned me on to a lot of um a lot of great doom fan edits uh yeah so that was a you you're actually kind of uh inadvertently responsible for my love of fan edits because uh, because of Dune, like you, you tuned me into into some of that, and then I found out about FanEdits.org probably through you, uh, and then a bunch of the other like sites that have information about it. But man, I just I, I just got us off topic, didn't I, Mike? I have a feeling we might quite a bit because there's a lot to talk about about this film before we even get to the film itself, such as these Superman movies. And I agree with you. I love one and two. Two. It's interesting. I went back a few years ago and watched one, two, three, and four. This was back when it was tough to find widescreen versions of films, if people remember that. Watched these over at a friend of mine's house who had a really nice TV, and I think we watched these on Laserdisc. And um, one fantastic film, and then I got to two, which I remembered being one of my favorite movies of all time, and forgot just how clunky some of it is. Like... The soundtrack just is it's not there. It's like the it's like the dollar ninety eight version of the John Williams soundtrack. Like they had the theme and they could play the shit out of the theme, but just the orchestration and everything and I was like that kind of signaled what the whole movie was for me because there are a couple moments where it's just like, Man, these special effects aren't as good as the first one and 
then finding out why that was years later, I was like, okay, this makes sense now. Why, when Nan is trying to, you know, burn that snake, why it just looks so freaking cheesy, you know? <laughs> why there's a why there's a child in Houston, Texas that has a English accent is still a question that remains unanswered. But yeah, I mean, yeah, as as a kid, I think that was like. We we had a we had a VHS copy of that uh, growing up in my house, and uh, I, I must watch Superman two tons and tons of times. So I have a real soft spot spot for it. But watching it as an adult, I kind of there there are some cringeworthy moments to it. Um, and now that I understand the history a lot more, the the Superman DVD box set that came out and it had all of the films and then a bunch of supplementary uh, materials. And one of the one of the items on there was a was a feature length documentary. Uh, I forget the name of it right now, but uh, it it went into the history of these, you know, all the Superman films and what exactly happened with Superman 2, uh, which is really fascinating if you're not already familiar with the story. Um, but a, a, as a kid loving that movie and then seeing it again as a grown up and realizing, you know, how flawed it was, uh, it, it was kind of an interesting perspective that I got from it. I still have a real soft spot. For Superman 2, but I'm a little more, I'm actually a lot more aware of the problems that exist with it. It's weird to think that Superman 4, The Quest for Peace, was 1987, and then Batman was 1989, and it feels like there's just such a huge gulf between those films. And I know that Batman, Tim Burton's Batman, is not the dark Knight, And we talked on our um, Batman returns episode about how like Frank Miller's comic and some of the other comics around this time, you know, really kind of changed what Batman was. And Burton was trying to bring some of that to the screen in 89. And obviously it's not as dark as something that like a Christopher Nolan would bring right. to us, but that gulf between the, the cheesy comic look of Superman four, which I know was, a result of the budget just being slashed and slashed and slashed and just, you know, it was uh, a, a victim of quite a few things. And it was a passion project for Christopher Reeve and unfortunately just didn't hit the way that it should have hit and it didn't have the support that it needed to have. But just looking at the way that that film looks and then looking at something like a Batman two years later, it's just, it feels like there was a new era of comic book movies starting in 89 that kind of really leads us into what we're talking about today, which is the death of Superman lives, which was another potential comic book movie that Tim Burton was going to bring to us. Right. Um, and I think, I think when that would have happened in the, you know, into, in the late nineties, like the comic book movies had waned a little bit because of like the failure of like steel and, uh, Batman and Robin, like there wasn't, um, it's kind of hard now to to think of the fact where comic book movies are consistently underperforming the new Fantastic Four movie aside, but it uh, back back in the mid '90s there was kind of fatigue from from the viewing audience, and I think part of the appeal behind bringing Tim Burton in for this Superman Lives uh, and bringing Kevin Smith in the screenwriter was to like tap into uh, this kind of '90s aesthetic and sensibility to maybe relaunch not only Superman as a viable theatrical uh, franchise, but also kind of relaunch the comic book movie, which had become stale by that point. In Superman, he died in the comic books in 1993, and it was this huge 
marketing push of DC to do this. There really wasn't necessarily a motivator behind the scenes as far as it being a really good story. And I've read the the Death of Superman series and the Rebirth of Superman, and I can't say that it is that compelling of a story. And if Max Landis, John Landis' son, has given us anything, he has given us a really nice video explaining, or at least his version of the events that kind of led to Superman's death and then what was going on in the comic and everything, and just kind of how ridiculous this whole thing was. Because at one point, there wasn't necessarily a Superman who was coming back from the grave, but there were like four Supermen who were kind of coming back and filling the void of Superman. Though one of them, I think, was the real Superman, and I'm sure that you've seen the Max Landis short. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about the reign of the Superman. So, merely one issue after Superman kicked the bucket, four different pretenders to the throne show up in Metropolis. It's it's been a while since I've seen it, but yeah, there was a wasn't wasn't the deal that one of them was Superman in disguise, and he was yeah yeah like it's it's a little fuzzy. It's been a while. I'll admit it's been a while that since I've seen the uh, the uh, Landis short. Landis probably much like uh, much of us gr- grew up on the Superman films, so he he has the perspective that anyone of his era would have, and I think with the short he was trying to. Uh, basically clue everyone into it i think a piece of art that that did this kind of better was i don't know are you familiar with the crash test dummy song superman song by any chance of course yeah Yeah. i'm hoping that's one of the bumpers for this episode but uh that came out in 91 so it actually predated the uh, death of superman storyline by two years but uh for anyone out in the audience it it kind of resonate uh it kind of has a has a nice synchronicity perfectly with the death of superman comic because it's it's showing kind of this quiet life of solitude and uh and despair that uh that clark kent and superman kind of had that they could have done anything they could have used their power for evil uh and superman chose to to do well uh instead so it's it's very interesting and since i'm since i'm already derailing the conversation (laughs) i'd like to recommend for anyone out there, the book "The Kryptonite Kid" by uh, Joseph Torchia, which is oh, yeah. which is this incredible, just devastating novel, and it was actually a a, a very short lived play as well uh, about a kid's letters to Superman, um, and when Superman doesn't write back, the kid's life takes a very unfortunate turn. It's kind of a devastating read, but yeah, it's well worth it. I also have to recommend the comic Red Sun. Um, which was an interesting take on Superman. I think it was a little bit after this. It was kind of a what-if story, and I love good what-ifs. You know, I think the Watcher and I, we would really get along pretty well. But what if Superman landed a few hours later, rather than landing in Kansas, what if it took a, just a few hours longer on that trip, the Earth had turned a little bit more, and he ends up landing in Soviet Russia. Wow. And that is a really great story, and I really can't recommend it enough. It's interesting that, you know, some of the things still play out. Like, there is a Russian version of Batman that comes about. There's a Russian version of, I think, of Wonder Woman that comes about. But it's almost like that there's a need that if there is a Superman, there needs to be a Batman as a comparison almost. Right. And... 
I think in the hands of Burton that Batman and Superman would have tread some similar ground as far as the outsider. You know, Tim Burton is famous for looking at these outsiders and, you know, like whether it be Winona Ryder and Beetlejuice or Edward Scissorhands and Edward Scissorhands, he's usually looking at these characters that are not of the time, not of the place, and that is definitely Batman, but moreover, it would really work well for the Superman character. He is an alien living among us and trying to fit in. And I do like that whole take on Superman and Clark Kent. Uh, one of the few things that I like that uh, Tarantino's written over the last couple of years, the speech that Carradine gives about how Superman as Clark Kent is his critique on the human race. Right. I always found that to be uh, a really nice piece of writing. Yeah, absolutely. And, and some kind of dead on comics criticism as well. As you know, I'm quite keen on comic books, especially the ones about superheroes. I find the whole mythology surrounding superheroes fascinating. Take my favorite superhero, Superman. Not a great comic book, not particularly well drawn. Mm. But the mythology, the mythology is not only great, it's unique. How long does this shit take to go into effect? About two minutes, just long enough for me to finish my point. Now, a staple of the superhero mythology is there's the superhero and there's the alter ego. Batman is actually Bruce Wayne, Spider-Man is actually Peter Parker. When that character wakes up in the morning, he's Peter Parker. He has to put on a costume to become Spider-Man. And it is in that characteristic Superman stands alone. Superman didn't become Superman. Superman was born Superman. When Superman wakes up in the morning, he's Superman. His alter ego is Clark Kent. His outfit with the big red S. That's the blanket he was wrapped in as a baby when the Kents found him. Those are his clothes. What Kent wears, the glasses, the business suit, that's the costume. That's the costume Superman wears to blend in with us. Clark Kent is how Superman views us. And what are the characteristics of Clark Kent? He's weak. He's unsure of himself. He's a coward. Clark Kent is Superman's critique on the whole human race. Superman has been on the screen, whether it be television screens or movie screens. I mean, he had been on TV for a long time. He had been on the radio, and I think it was with the radio where we really break with what we know of Superman from the comics. Superman in the comics, you know, he could leap tall buildings in a single bound, all that kind of stuff. But the whole idea of the Daily Planet and Superman being a reporter, that came in from the radio show. So if there were, you know, nerds like us 
back in the 1940s or whatever, they would probably be, you know, going out and, and writing their fanzines about how horrible it is that now they have given Superman a job. But, but luckily, there wasn't nerd rage, at least uh, that we know of. I, I wonder what the first documented case of nerd rage is. Um, I think we'll have to leave that up to the anthropologist. But Superman stuck with us. He was in the movies. He was in the four first films that we were talking about. He was also on television like crazy. There was Superboy. There was Smallville, of course, we know. There was The Adventures of uh, what Lois, Lois and Clark. Clark. Yeah. Right. Yep. So he's been with us for a while. So this whole idea of rebooting the Superman franchise just a few years later after the death of Superman, not really a radical idea, but it was definitely radical in the way that they were going to approach this thing yeah they were going to they were going to try to clear the the cinematic slate and say this is an all-new superman for the 90s and by that they were much like you know originally michael keaton was cast as batman to the dismay of people they decided to bring in nicholas cage this non-traditional choice because he he didn't have the square jaw or the typical super superman look um, but they were going to make him a Superman for the 90s and all that that implies. Uh, yeah, so it would have been an interesting film, but for reasons that this this what happened, the death of Superman lives or uh, gets into, uh, it didn't. And I don't know, had this Tim Burton Superman lives gotten made, what the finished product would have been. I tend to think it would have kind of been a bit of a mess. Yeah, it's interesting because I was posting that we were going to talk about this movie or that I was watching the film, The Death of Superman Lives, What Happened, and somebody was just like, oh, yeah, that would have been such a great film. I'm like, I really don't know about that. Yeah, I I, I feel like it would have been I, – I feel like it wouldn't have been that far removed from Batman and Robin in terms of its visual look. Tim Burton um, is a guy who I'm very hit or miss with. Uh, I love, you know, I love things that he did like Ed Wood and I love, um, you know, I, I love my favorite Tim Burton movie is Big Fish. So that's going to kind of tell you about where I'm, where I'm at with, with Tim Burton. But I feel like a lot of time he's just playing, he's just rearranging the same notes. Uh, so I'm, I'm not the hugest Burton fan to begin with. But I, I do think in, in this documentary has some of his uh, some of his sketches and some of his concepts, and I think it would have been an interesting film. I don't know it would have been a successful film, uh, either you know pleasing to like studio executives or audiences alike, because it, it was going to be weird. And I think that is the uh, biggest appeal of this this movie that never was. It's funny that you say that he was just rearranging the same notes, because I think that's how Danny Elfman's been making his living lately. I'll admit that I still haven't seen Big Eyes. I haven't seen it. No, I would like to. I just haven't gotten around to it yet. That's because I've been burned by him so many times lately. Yeah. I mean, the last, the three before that, Alice in Wonderland, Dark Shadows, and Frank and Weenie. Yeah. Oh, come on. Yeah, I, uh, I just, I'm just like, okay, it's more of the same. You know, this isn't for me. I, at this point, I don't feel I'm a member of the hot topic, you know, audience, target audience, and I feel like that's what he's going for. And I feel he's, he's, he, I, I really feel that Tim Burton is, is such a talent that I would, I. 
it kind of bothers me that he's been on autopilot. Like, I want to see the Tim Burton of Pee Wee's Big Adventure again. Like, that kind of unhinged, uh, experimenting, just weird filmmaker. Like, like give me that. I, I watched Pee Wee's Big Adventure again recently and was just, like, that movie's, since it just turned 30, I think, the day we're recording this podcast, it's it's as magical to me now as it was back in 85. And, like, I want to see a movie by Tim Burton that, that touches me on that level again, or on the emotional level that Big Fish does. You know, that's that's what I'd like to see from Tim Burton, not more, you know, pseudo-goth trappings. Yeah. I mean, the remakes of, um, you know, popular stories, yeah. Sleepy Hollow and Alice in Wonderland, or the adaptations of things like a Dark Shadows or Charlie yeah. and the Chocolate Factory – Come on. I actually did love I, – I, I agree with everything you say there except I would remove Sleepy Hollow from that because I think that Sleepy Hollow – I actually have I, – I love Sleepy Hollow. Um, I, I do enjoy that, that version and I think it might be Johnny Depp's last truly great performance and that's in 1999. So, yeah. Um, again, that's a discussion for the other day, for another day. I will agree with you, by the way, wholeheartedly about Big Fish. Yeah, it's it's a tremendous, un, completely underrated and unseen film by him. And it's got a little bit of the Tim Burton trappings, you know, the um, use of Danny DeVito, but so many actors, and of course Helena Bonham Carter, but so many actors that we don't necessarily associate with Tim Burton, and I was really glad for that. And he challenged himself. I, I felt it was really, really, uh, it, it was a real kind of stepping outside of his comfort zone, and I wonder how much, you know, the film's box office failure really kind of impacted him to uh, to take two steps backwards and go back into the the type of films that he he likes to make after Big Fish didn't really find its audience. Well, we're totally off topic as far as Superman Returns, but Tim Burton major player in this in this story and also in the documentary and I was so excited that he was able to get he being John Schnepp was able to get Tim Burton I was um I, to be honest with you I I mean I I was aware of this documentary before I saw it but I was not prepared for how much Tim Burton was going to be in this documentary and I was also not prepared for how kind of cool and laid back of a guy Tim Burton was going to come off as in this that was this documentary's biggest kind of surprise to me and I really I really enjoyed that aspect of it the most because you know Burton's obviously a hugely busy guy and uh, I you know it's not like uh, John Schnepp is a, um, and this is not to, to downgrade his his talents or his abilities as well, because this is, a, this is a real fun documentary. But he's not like a household name in terms of documentarian. He's he's not an Errol Morris. Like you you don't really you you haven't heard of this guy. Um, but this you know he he got he got John Peters and he got Tim Burton. And what both men have to say are consistently fascinating, and this is a uh, this is an interesting documentary because of it. Well, it's very much a he said he said he said documentary yes. where we're cutting between Tim Burton, who yeah, I was very surprised that he was on film, John Peters, who was the I I consider him the uncontrolled id. He just is he thinks below the waist, whether it's with his pocketbook or his dick. He just is like this guy. I mean, he has claimed in the past that like the movie shampoo was based on his life. Right. He 
is just so full of himself, and he definitely comes across that way in the film. There is, you know, he, he, they're they're not glossing over the fact that he is just this tremendous ego. And I have to say that there are points where he comes off as Superman's worst enemy. I think like Lex Luthor could take some pointers from John Peters at times. I, uh, I, I, I definitely see that he's he's. If if this movie has a villain, uh, he is definitely set up as that. Um, that he has these pet ideas that he wants to incorporate in this movie, and he will do it at pretty much all costs. The uh, I, I feel like he did say a few things, though, in the interest of fairness, that were not completely uh, unhinged. At at no. at one point when he's talking about bringing bringing his kids in to get their take on. You know, on things. I think that's actually a really because he's so he's so familiar with the film industry and how you know how jaded you can become by it, for lack of a better word. Uh, you know, to bring these kids in to get their to bring his kids in to get their point of view on like the story or the character or the production designer or whatever. I actually think that's not a terrible idea, and I, I feel like you're supposed to you're supposed to feel like he's a villain for wanting to bring his his kids in to get their point of view on things. And I, I don't feel like that was, I don't feel that and a few other things that he does are that kind of abnormal, like him wanting to have the script read to him while he visualizes in his head. It's a creative quirk and there are far worse things that people have done. And I feel like maybe this documentary spends a little bit too much uh, time on focusing on these these little aspects. I mean, clearly he's got some wacky ideas, but not every idea he has is terrible from a creative point of view. No, the, he definitely does have some good ideas. He had a lot of clout in Hollywood. He made a lot of really good films along the way. Right. Just he did have some bad ideas. He had a yeah, couple oh, of things that he was focusing on. But yeah, I, I totally agree. I can see where the guys who are doing all of these drawings and concepts and stuff, where they would be pissed off with you know the producer bringing his kids in. But yeah, I agree that there was a lot of validity to that because you can become way too close to a project, right. and you need to have that voice of somebody else, whether it's this guy's kids or just some schmuck. You need off an the outside street. perspective because you become too close to things when you're working right. on them. Yeah, that's how things like Southland Tales happen. Yeah, yeah. Kevin Smith is the third leg of this triangle, the third leg of the stool, I should say. Smith has been very vocal about this project over the years. This is part of his stand-up act, is to talk about Superman Lives. So I was not surprised at all to see him in this documentary, even though, you know, I've talked on this show before that I think that Smith is a little bit of a recluse, doesn't like to speak in public or anything, and is very, you know, very shy. But he manages to occasionally come out of his shell and speak in front of a camera. It's a shame that uh, Kevin Smith never found his confidence or his voice or his ability to market himself. It's it's an absolute shame. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but i will say you can only carry him so far <laughs> right right i will say this though I, I what i admire about smith is he's a guy who who does like acknowledge his own strengths and weaknesses and he says in this movie like this um you know telling this story made him realize how good of a storyteller he is and you, anyone who's seen an evening with kevin smith like my my feelings on smith's you know uh creative output uh, aside which i i don't i'm i'm neither the biggest 
supporter or detractor of Smith. But I think where he does really shine is in things like his Smodcast and an evening with with Kevin Smith, where his Superman Lives story is the undisputed highlight of that evening with Kevin Smith talk. I, I think what I what I admire most about Smith is in this in this movie he makes the point that the Superman Lives experience made him realize like his true ability is kind of as a storyteller about behind the scenes stuff. Like if anyone's seen an evening with Kevin Smith, you can uh, you, you you become familiar with this tale of his his woes and his saga of kind of getting Superman lives onto the page and trying to get the production of it happening and his interactions with John Peters. And he tells a really great story. And uh, what I like most about Smith is his ability as a storyteller through both all of his like evening with documentaries and their spinoffs, as well as um, like his work on Smodcast. He has he does have a very like he's a very charming storyteller. And there's a lot of that on display in this documentary. So I I, I, I do think that while Smith is uh, he is kind of constantly talking about himself he owns that so i can admire that about him you know what i mean yeah i would much rather spend an afternoon with kevin smith than spending an afternoon watching his films right i think he comes off as a very charming guy and smart and geeky and just the kind of person that i would like to you know hang out with for an afternoon and he makes an occasional good movie here and there um but Mm, yeah, I mean, other than Dogma, I don't think I own any of his films on DVD. I I, I really like you know uh, Schnepp utilizing him in in this film. Uh, oh yeah, because like yeah, because anyone who knows about Superman Lives kind of knows about it through Kevin Smith's you know college lecturing tour and his videos and everything. So. People know about that. So that was a voice you absolutely you you wanted to hear from three people in this documentary. You wanted to hear from Kevin Smith, you wanted to hear from Tim Burton, and you wanted to hear from John Peters. I would like to hear from uh, from Nicholas Cage as well, but obviously Nicholas Cage is probably a much tougher get. So I I I, I feel like it's totally understandable that Nicholas Cage isn't a presence in this film, other than fascinating archival uh, footage oh, yeah. that Schnepp got. And that is another great thing about this documentary is that he has all of this never before seen in its entirety uh, footage of costume testings and uh, behind the scenes footage of everything like any anything that actually any work that went into trying to make Superman lives a reality is featured in this documentary and Schnepp does just this, this kind of masterful job of curating all this stuff and having it flow and, you know, really giving it's, it's, he really gives an idea of what this movie would have been if it had come to, you know, come to, if if it had been made, uh, you know, if it had, been given like the final green light and went into production like you would you would get an idea of what this would instead it become obviously that didn't happen so instead it becomes a um another great it could have been like the recent dune documentary from last year like this movie you know it's kind of along those lines like so yeah i mean it's it's a really interesting take on this movie that may or may not have been anything 
but it's interesting to hear the story behind why this didn't get made. Yeah, I definitely love those kind of documentaries. I mean, we've talked about Hirowski's doing on the show before. We talked about Lost Soul, the documentary about the making of the island of Dr. Moreau. Right. And there are so many good ones out there. I mean, I haven't seen Tegrero. One of these days, I will watch that one. I mean, the, the Hearts of Darkness, the filmmaker's yeah. apocalypse, there's so many great uses of what could have been when it came to Orson Welles' uh, adaptation of Heart of Darkness. Yeah. And then the use of the radio play as a voiceover. I mean, and that will be talked about. We'll be doing Apocalypse Now in a few months oh, cool. on the show. And I just... Uh, got off the phone with Peter Medak the other day and his upcoming documentary The Ghost of Peter Sellers is very uh, along those lines as far as a movie that was made but he is giving you the behind the scenes of why it was the way that it was which I think is great and then hopefully we'll be doing an episode here on Doomed which was another movie that was made but what is the story of the original Fantastic Four which I, you know, you couldn't get better advertising for that movie than and this recent Fantastic Four movie, which was another just piece of shit. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I saw it yesterday, and it was it was a tr- it was atrocious. But in, in just, I wasn't surprised by how atrocious it was. It was. And then uh, that Doom documentary, really, uh, that and I feel this: uh, the death of Superman lives. What happened will make an absolutely terrific double feature on the convention circuit. Uh, so I, I, I hope Schnepp hooks up with those filmmakers because. I think I think that would be just a great pairing, and they could have some fun with the Marvel DC uh, rivalry. All right, so let's go ahead and take a break and play an interview with the director and producer of "The Death of Superman Lives: What Happened." That's John Schnapp and Holly Payne. After these brief messages. Hi, this is Andrew from We Hate Movies, and you're listening to the Projection Booth. If you feel like laughing after listening to some serious film discussion, head on over to our show, whmpodcast.com. Every Tuesday, a new episode drops, us ragging on bad movies, whereas the good folks here at the Projection Booth are talking about good, party, cinema-related stuff. Go here for the cinema. Come to us for the laughs afterwards. We Hate Movies every Tuesday. Tuning into Sci-Fi TV. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. I'm Brent Barrett. I'm Kevin Batchelder. I'm Wendy Hembrock. The viewer's guide to genre television. Welcome, everyone, to a special Supernatural-focused bonus Hello, everyone, show. and welcome to The Faith Files. A family of podcasts for the genre-loving television viewer. Welcome to Saturday Bee Movie Reel. Hi, everyone. Welcome to The Study welcome Group. Welcome to the top genre characters of all time countdown. And tonight, we're going to... You like cheap comic books, right? Well, I'm Professor Allen. And I talk about cheap comic books on the Quarterbin Podcast. In every episode, I'll dissect a single comic from my collection, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for the issue. Forget about $4 new comics that you can read in four minutes, or crossover events that can cost 100 bucks to collect. Join me in the Quarterbin, where even bad comics are a bargain, and good ones are a steal. The Quarterbin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network. Visit us at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or search Relatively Geeky or Quarterbin Podcast on iTunes. I guarantee it'll be worth every penny. 
I'm John Schnepp. I'm the writer, producer, director of The Death of Superman Lives, What Happened? And uh, I've also uh, directed a bunch of cartoons over the years for uh, Adult Swim, like Metalocalypse and Venture Brothers, and uh, recently directed a short segment for the ABCs of Death. So that's me. And I am Holly Payne. I'm the producer of The Death of Superman Lives, What Happened? I'm also an actor. I was also in the ABCs of Death. W is for What the Fuck? And I'm working on uh, getting together ideas for my next documentary right now. And when did you two meet? Uh, we met like uh, 12 years ago at an improv comedy store here in uh, Hollywood. When did the idea for The Death of Superman Lives, What Happened? come about? It was something I was interested in for many years. It kind of hit me uh, when we were just having dinner with some friends and I was talking about uh, these files I'd been keeping on the concept art for this Superman Lives movie. And I just met the special effects artist, Steve Johnson. And uh, a couple of people suggested maybe I should try making a documentary about it or raise the money on Kickstarter. And I said no. And then a couple months later, I just kept kicking the idea around. And I thought that's a great way to find out if other people are interested in this uh, subject matter because I knew I was interested in it. So I trusted my gut and did a Kickstarter. And that's uh, how we started the project. How did you decide to have Holly be the producer or did Holly... Did you just kind of naturally? It just was a natural fit. I mean, we've been together, like I said, for many years, and she's helped me on many different projects in different uh, capacities. And this was something that, you know, originally just started out with like helping out. And then she became a larger part as we kept moving forward in the in the making of the documentary and uh, really, really key person on the project, especially this last year, her and Marie and myself uh, really worked on uh, molding the film. Marie so. is our uh, editor. Marie Hamora, she and John and I were pretty much the, the, the trifecta of uh, creators on the project. But, um, but yeah, it's been a long haul. It's been starting from um, just crowdfunding the project to production to post-production. Um, it's been a two and a half year process. Had you done any sort of producing work before this? With John, yes, but this is, but, but I've been doing producing with like uh, stuff with Kamikaze, Stan Lee's Kamikaze, uh, other event programming and stuff like that, but nothing on, working on a film before. This is the first time uh, in in that capacity. What was the response like with the Kickstarter? Well, the Kickstarter was pretty explosive. The first weekend, we uh, we raised like one third of our bu- the budget that we were asking for. So it seems like there's a lot of people who had, who had a lot of interest in this film. In fact, uh, within the first two weeks of the Kickstarter, I I received probably like four different emails from different people who who had said they wanted to do the same thing. They wanted to make a documentary about this. So um, I think it's been on people's minds, in the back of their minds at least, like this uh, interpretation of the Superman character and especially the uh, group of people that were brought together to work on it, ranging from Kevin Smith to Tim Burton all the way to Nicolas Cage. It's something that has always kind of piqued a lot of people's interest and even those people who never heard about it were like wow that sounds really interesting so when you started up the kickstarter who did you have in place as far as interviews or actors or anything or did you just say this will fall into place as we go along yeah well yeah honestly you never know um especially with a documentary you don't know what you're going to be up against um john had the idea but we didn't have anybody um set in you know line to do the interviews or anything when we first started the Kickstarter, uh, we just got it was just a litmus test to see how much interest there was. Obviously, there was a lot, but really, I would say we we changed the uh, entire film from concept to 
completion from over the course of two years. Initially, we were talking to a lot of comics, artists, and writers. But once we actually were able to speak with the people who worked on the film itself, the entire narrative of the story and uh, the whole film changed. So it was basically, I would say that when, you know, when we got Tim Burton, then we were able to talk to everybody else. I didn't have anyone lined up when I started the Kickstarter. There was no one at all. It was literally like, I'm going to try my best to talk to all these people, but I hadn't pre-contacted anybody. So who was the first one to kind of fall in line? Because you've got some heavy hitters in here. Who was the first one who really stepped up for you? I can tell you exactly who the first, very first interview was, and it was just by coincidence. We were at Monster Palooza in Burbank, and we ran into Carrie Gamble, who was one of the concept artists on Superman Lives. And John knew that he was a concept artist, so we just asked him right off the bat, just right there. We were like, hey, can we interview you for this? We're starting this film. And he was very receptive, and uh, that was shot in, in a hotel room in, at the Marriott in Burbank. Uh, same way with Pete Von Schale, who was another guy who was also at Monster Palooza and was also a concept artist on Superman Lives. So those were our two very first interviews. Yeah, um, Pete Von Schale was the following year. He was like, Carrie Gamble was, uh, was while we were still actually raising money. Just saying coincidence-wise, yeah. they were both there. But yeah, Carrie Gamble was our first interview. So when did you get like a Peters or a Burton or a Smith to step into this or a Gilroy or a Strick? Strick was actually the the first actual official writer who came on board. And he was, I believe, about a month after we had finished the Kickstarter. Uh, I had talked to his uh, his son, who was working over at the animation studio that I was working at. And uh, that's how I got in contact with him. And he agreed to to do the interview. So he was one of the first actual official writers on who agreed to be part of it. Kevin Smith and Tim Burton ended up being part of it. Over a year later, over a year and a half later, it was like roughly in 2014. And then John Peters came about literally about a month before we actually even screened the film. We had basically had the entire film cut together and we were getting ready to screen it April 30th. That was going to be our red carpet premiere. And uh, we still had not gotten in contact with John Peters. He was quite elusive and really hard to find a way to contact him. A lot of the, the, the bigger heavy hitters were really hard to just, there's no way to just call them. There's no way to, you know, just get their permission to do an interview. It's like, you have to kind of get a, an inside into how to contact them either through their agents. Um, but John Peters really didn't have any active agents at the time. So I had, I had since given up on trying to interview him. To be fair, actually, he was the very he was the very last interview. But for quite some time before we got him, John Schnapp uh, was not as excited to have John Peters be interviewed because he comes from our artistic background. And some of the people that we had interviewed up until that point, a lot of the concept artists um, had some, you know, had some rough experiences with him in the art department. Um, So I think that John's perspective on it was sort of tinged with the idea that uh, this guy was, you know, sort of a bull in a china shop and maybe uh, not going to be the most uh, endearing person to talk to. Um, but I, I really kind of hammered it home that if we didn't have John Peters, we didn't have a complete story. Because we're telling, it, you know, when you're making a documentary, you've got to be as uh, democratic as possible and make sure you get all stories from all participants. And John Peters was the person who worked on this film the longest uh, even longer than Tim Burton. So without having John Peters take, 
and his input, uh, you really can't tell an honest story. So we were really grateful to get him. And when we finally interviewed him, he was, he was a hoot to talk to. Did you guys run into any problems with Warner Brothers as far as showing all these concepts and stuff? Or was that all pretty much just fair use? Uh, yeah, I mean, you know what? It's pretty much all fair use. I mean, basically, uh, uh, Tim Burton's executive producer, Derek Fry, gave us uh, access to a lot of the, the, the artwork and a lot of this behind-the-scenes footage that they've had for years. And uh, by using that, along with clips, uh, doing just basically following the, the, the fair use guidelines, that's how we constructed the entire documentary and just used that along with, uh, like I said, the interviews. That footage of Cage is just mind-blowing. It sure is. The day that Holly and I got that footage, we were actually in our uh, in our Airbnb over in London, and uh, it literally, we, our jaws just dropped while we watched it. It's, it's, it's about a little over 45 minutes of you know different costume uh, tests and different stages over the course from 97 all the way to 98 uh, while they were working on the development of it. And it's it, it really it literally is like you know we've referred to it as the holy grail of this documentaries the footage of it because it really it kind of validates a lot of things that none of us really knew about but it it just shows you that not only was Tim kind of actively uh, looking into uh, you know doing a different take on Superman but so was Nick Cage and both of them had a really good back and forth about the character and so it's really nice to be like you know there while they're talking about it. Going back to John Peters, what was he like when you finally met him? Was he kind of the the what you had in your head as far as what his experience on this project was? Um, I don't think we had any real. I mean, I, I know that John had an, ideas in his head before we met John Peters, but um, I don't think I, I certainly didn't go in with any sort of anticipation of anything except to meet a new person who had a lot of experience with this this film. And with Superman property. So when we actually sat down and met with him, he was actually so engaging. The first thing that happened when we walked through those doors on his 19th floor penthouse uh, apartment um, was he pointed us in the direction of the skull ship. Like he was like, you wanted to see the skull ship? There it is. And there it was like in this giant Lucite case, just the most gorgeous thing we'd ever seen. Um, He was incredibly disarming and really funny and charming and, uh, had an amazing head of hair and um, just really, really cool guy to talk to. I mean, some of the some of the stuff was sort of blurry because he's worked on so many different um, Superman properties. So he was talking about, uh, you know, J.J. Abrams flyby as well as uh, Man of Steel. All, they got a little mi- mixed up at points, but we we kept him on track talking about Superman lives. But um, he was very forthcoming. You know, he had a lot of a lot of things to say. This is a really big deal for him. This is a an emotional roller coaster as much for him as it was for Tim Burton at, for Nicolas Cage, for everyone who worked on it. Yeah. He, he specifically said to us before and after the interview that he doesn't do interviews and he rarely talks to anyone about any of this stuff, but he got a good vibe from us. And, uh, you know, I, I have to, uh, have to say after about 20 minutes of talking with him while we were doing the interview, I really felt like I got where he was coming from. I, I understand that, you know, when you're watching the, the documentary, um, and it's cutting back and forth between him and Kevin or him and Tim. Uh, he does have some, uh, you know, pretty crazy, spectacular things. It really kind of makes sense where he was coming from. I mean, he, he himself is an old time producer and he comes at it, you know, all of his projects with like, you know, very specific ideas. So for him, uh, like using, say, the giant spider as an example, 
for him, he said, you know, Superman's already fought all these other humans or these, you know, humanoid characters. So he wanted to see something different and like give Superman a real challenge. And in his mind, using something like 20,000 leagues under the sea, like, you know, fighting a giant squid or a giant spider would would have that kind of epic quality in his mind. Holly, I love that you pointed out what a beautiful head of hair he has. It's hard to it's hard to ignore. It's amazing. It's this it ha- it glows. I mean, it was there's like this corona around him. Please tell me that you have all the footage of him talking about flyby in the bonus features for the disc. We edited together um, about an hour of the interview um, with extended stuff. There's some stuff in there, but uh, mostly it's him talking about Superman Lives and, and other ideas. I mean, there he worked on a lot of other films. He worked on Caddyshack. He was responsible for the Gopher in Caddyshack. So there's he's got a long, long history in Hollywood. I mean, he is definitely one of those old-fashioned Hollywood producers, but he's been in the business for so long. Um, you know, Superman Lives was just one of many films that he worked on. So... Uh, John and John talked about that and and a bunch of other stuff. But uh, actually, one of my favorite points in the extras with Peters is uh, is that I asked him to put John Schnepp in a headlock. So <laughs> twice, actually. So that that's on there, which is pretty entertaining. It was you should see the smile on John Peters' face too. He's just he just lit up when yeah. I asked him to do that. And we end up getting it. We end up getting a good photo of it, and it's actually uh, our alternate uh, po- movie poster that's on uh, our combo pack Blu-ray. So yeah, I gotta say, uh, how did that feel, John? Felt that man is very strong. He's he's about seventy, and he's uh, you know, he does uh, you know, he's a black belt, and he's uh, d- In practices Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Yeah, he practices every day. Uh, very, I wouldn't want to fight him. That's for sure. But uh, yeah, he he talked a lot about uh, the J.J. Abrams. Um, Superman flyby, but we kind of we kept it, even in the extra features. We just we cut most of that out because you know uh, you never know. So you know we have we do have John Peters talking about Superman flyby, but that could be something else. So did I read right? There are eight hours worth of extras on this Blu-ray. That is correct. Yeah. That was I mean we nearly killed ourselves with that, but uh, but yeah we we pushed uh, the Blu-ray to its its technical limits. Yeah. <laughs> like you couldn't add pro- you couldn't add any more than what we did to the Blu-ray. Altogether it's 10 hours. Yeah. Yeah, so it's the film plus an additional 8 and a half some odd hours and it really it's made up of like, you know, different interviews and different uh we we have, you know, interviews with comic book artists, writers, uh, fans of Superman. We've got an extended uh, you know, interview with Grant Morrison. No, we don't. Not that's not on the yeah, the extended interview. We have the interview, but we yeah. don't have. There's one thing that didn't make it. I'll let you know. There's one thing that didn't make it to the uh, Blu-ray, and that was for space and for time and for fair use clearance. But we are going to offer it later on, um, on hopefully on our website for digital download. But it's a uh, it's a whole history of Superman with Grant Morrison. Unfortunately, with due to timing, the fact that we had to get it out for Comic Con, we had to to basically cut that because it would mean going through a whole. The process of going through fair use clearance again, which takes a long time to do. So um, there is an extended interview with Grant Morrison. One of my favorite features, though, is the featurette because it actually has a lot of stuff that we couldn't put into the documentary that didn't make it into the documentary. That's including concept art, too. So and something like the toy ideas. And um, there's some really cool stuff in there that um, that was not able to be covered in the film. So there's a there's a whole and that's an hour all on its own. Um, but let's see what else is on there. We've got the extended interview with John Peters. We've got the featurette. We've got a great little short segment with Sylvain Despretz, who's one of the 
ex-concept artists right. on Superman Lives. Um, he's the guy who, in the film, uh, says he'd like to see John Peters fight a, ju- fight a shark. But uh, there's a lot of flavor on there, a lot of Q&As that we've done. We've got uh, an extended resuscitation suit sequence that uh, in the actual movie is roughly when you put the two uh, elements together, it's four minutes. And uh, the extended scene is like a little over 30 minutes. We talked to the special effects artists who worked at uh, at Steve Johnson's facility. And uh, we had so much amazing footage, just behind the scenes footage of them working on these different uh, outfits it was just so much. I mean, it's it, it's so much fun, but like it's a, it's a like a laser focused uh, element, and it's like when you put that into the actual documentary, you know, it, it, it's almost it's almost too uh, you know special effects geeky. So it was like we wanted to distill it, so it was like but for flowed. super sweaties, it's amazing. Yeah, I mean, it's really it really gets into all the stuff that Steve Johnson, the the magic that Steve Johnson brings to the stuff that he's worked on, the films that he's worked on. This is like super behind the scenes stuff where he was doing stuff he'd never done before. So it's really, really cool. Also, we have a word association with uh, Tim Burton, which is pretty awesome. It was a, I think it was kind of an off the cuff idea for you at the end of the interview with Tim Burton. When we were in London, John just threw it out there to Tim. Uh, He said, so what would you think if we, if we just did like a word association and uh, I rattled off the names of all of your films and you just gave me your first impressions. So that's on there. And that is, really enlightening i don't think that tim burton has actually been quite this revealing in any interview so far he just felt really at ease and i think that he he understood where we were coming from and he was really uh i think he just jived with john and uh and he says you know he's very um self-effacing with his responses about his films you know i mean some of the films he's worked on he knows didn't work and he was very forthcoming with that information other ones he was like uh, very sardonic. One of the, I think my favorite thing is when he says, uh, Pee Wee's Big Adventure, he says, well, it was better than my restaurant job. Um, <laughs> but there's a little, a lot of little details like that. Um, but yeah, it, it paced yourself cause it's eight extra hours of footage. Yeah. Another, another, uh, big chunk of some of those hours are with Kevin Smith. We did our interview and then I had him kind of do his, uh, you know, night with Kevin Smith that, you know, where he talked about, you know, his working on the screenplay with John Peter. So he kind of redoes that, but it's like the 2000, you know, 15 version. Uh, So we just called it an afternoon with Kevin Smith, but it's basically that whole, that whole thing kind of just, just him doing his bit about, you know, him working on the screenplay. And then uh, there's a whole other section where we just talked about comic books and the art of adapting stuff and, and different things like that. And then we also have, his Q&A that we did after the, the the premiere of our film, he came on the third night of the, you know, we had three night a three-night premiere here in uh, over at the Egyptian in Hollywood, California. And uh, he came on the third night, saw the film, and then came out and we did a Q&A with him, which was almost two hours. We cut a few minutes out here and there, but it was like a really fun Q&A with, uh, with Kevin intact, Smith. Pretty much though. Yeah. Pretty much all there. You know, Holly, you mentioned sweaties, and I can't say, and the first time I actually heard the term was in the documentary. I've never heard that term before. <laughs> well, that is a term that the king of the sweaties, John Schnupp, coined many years ago, and it's kind of caught on because he's done that. He does this uh, show. Well, so he started on AMC Movie Talk, and now it's Collider Movie Talk, but uh, he's got a huge fan base, and uh, he's been calling sweaties, that he includes himself in that category, yeah, by the way. Yeah. 
um, sweaties for years because it's very descriptive. It's exactly what I mean. You know exactly what he's talking about when he says sweaties. Yeah. But you get you give the best description. Well, it's it's literally describing like a you know a sweaty nerd and just calling them sweaties is like people get really excited about a subject matter that they're so into that they. Their bro- their brow is sweating, and they're like <laughs> they get like trip over themselves while they start talking. <laughs> but no, but you see, they get, they get really really excited about it. It's something that when Holly and I first started dating, like over a decade ago, we would go to these different comic cons, and it was so much fun to like just embrace the the culture that we love. And so we were came up with a bunch of different names for different kinds of nerds, and really created our own little. Little, we have uh, a whole lexicon. Yeah. So uh, for for myself, the 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 sweaties was like a thing. I just sweat. Swe- yeah, you're a sweaty nerd. And, and at first, people like took offense to it. Like, what are you talking about? What do you mean I'm sweaty? And then as they understood what I'm talking about, now they've embraced it. No, it's great. We uh, we get tweets every day saying I'm a proud sweaty. You know, and then they show their the cover of their Blu-ray or something. It's, yeah. It's caught on. People understand we're not taking the piss. We're actually we ourselves are sweaties. Yeah. So you know, we welcome the sweaty brethren. I know that you guys must have gone after Cage. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. How does it feel now that he is kind of speaking about it, now that the documentary is already out there? Well, to be honest, he's not saying anything that he didn't say in the film. What he said in the junkets, and keep this in mind, people who are interviewing him have access because they are because he's forced to sit down and talk to them. You know, It's not a matter of... He's not volunteering to talk to them. He's signed a contract, so he has to speak at junkets. And so people are going to be asking him about this documentary because it's very topical right now. So, um, But what he says in, in these junkets is really no different than what he says in the documentary, which is that he knew that Tim Burton had a great vision for this film and he was all in. And that, you know, people's imaginations can run wild with it. Maybe that's a better thing than actually seeing the film. Um, he basically says that in our in our movie as well. It doesn't sting at all that he's saying this stuff now because he really isn't saying anything different. And the fact of the matter is, is that um, we've been in contact with his manager for over a year. Um, and it was, a, you know, we were back and forth and back and forth with him for quite some time. The guy works incessantly. He never stopped working. So... He's a really hard guy to get a hold of. Um, there was about a week window when we could have gotten him, and he was going to be back, yes, um, and then uh, flying back out to do another movie. That window disappeared because he went directly from one film to another and never came back here. So, um, but it wasn't for lack of trying. I think ultimately he, you know, towards the very end, you know, we were. This is after John Peters getting John Peters, but ultimately. He said, finally, he said, you know, I, I'm declining to be interviewed for this. But I think it has to do with scheduling as well as the fact that if you think about it, he's become such so ridiculed and so memed to death that it's, you know, I, I don't blame him for even for for taking a step back and going, you know, what? if I say anything, it's just going to I'll be crucified for it. So. Um, that's what he, you know, he was, he was putting his guard up for very good reason, not with us, but just, I think against the public because he could be made a laughing stock of, you know, and he didn't know, he hadn't seen the film at that point. So, um, you know, I'm actually looking forward to talking to his manager this week. Uh, I know that he's, I, I hand delivered Blu-rays to their office a few weeks ago. So there's one for Nick and one for his manager. And, um, at this point, um, I think they've seen it, so I'm looking forward to hearing what they have to say. I mean, we ourselves are huge Nicolas Cage fans, you know. I think that he's gotten a bad rap over the years. Of course, sometimes he doesn't take the best jobs, but at the same time, 
when he's paired with a director like Werner Herzog or the Coen brothers or gosh, who else? Who's the director of Birdie? Alan, Alan Parker. Parker. I mean, he's done amazing, just amazing work over the years and he won an Oscar for good reason. So we're all about shining a light on what Nicolas Cage does well. And, and I think it really shows in the film. The one thing I was really impressed with that I didn't think was going to look as good was that test footage that ILM did. That looked spectacular. Well, yeah, I mean, it's like it's basically that was, you know, 98. Uh, you know, they were working on Spawn. They were like, you know, they'd already done. I mean, they were they were working on the Phantom Menace. I mean, special effects had already come such a, a long way, uh, especially computer graphics at that time that, uh you know, it's just it's just something that you never saw. You never really saw Superman as a CG animated anything up until 2006 with Superman Returns. So the test footage, everyone was excited about it. It just no, no one's ever seen it before. What are your guys's favorite Superman incarnation? Uh, when you say my favorite Superman incarnation, are you talking about comic book <laughs> or TV or movie? I'm leaving that one up to you. Oh, that's right. that's a big world. Well, for comic book. I got to be honest with you. I really, really enjoyed John Byrne's reincarnation of Superman from the late eighties. Uh, it was a, it was a, a brand like they basically canceled Superman and brought him back as a brand new character um, with less powers. And they just, you know, I mean, Superman every, every couple 10, 15 years, they have to do that to Superman. They kind of have to do a re, you know, a refresher because uh, that's kind of how a lot of superhero, superhero comic books have to go. Um, but that was a really fun run, and then Grant Morrison did a great run with uh, Frank Quietly. So those were my two most recent, I'd say, favorite Superman comic books. Uh, as far as the movies go, I really liked Man of Steel quite a bit. I think Henry Cavill definitely uh, was able to capture this newer version of Superman that you know a lot of people don't like, but you know I don't find any reason really to hate on it. I, I thought it was a really good restart for the Superman character. Uh, of course, I love Christopher Reeve in uh, the first Superman and the second Superman. And uh, that's about it. Uh, the, as far as for television, I've never been a big TV fan, except for when I was a kid, George Reeves. So there you go. Uh, I would say for me, I, I was definitely the first two Superman films that I saw when I was a little kid. Christopher Reeve was, was uh, those movies were just really, uh, Boy, they just got under my skin when I was a kid. I just loved those films, and um, I've never been a big, uh, I've never been a big comic reader for the the juggernaut superheroes like Batman and Superman. Um, you know, I like the I like the pantheon of gods, not the singular ones as much. So, um, as far as comics, it just he never really appealed to me because he was a little bit too messianic, and it was I I got I got the parallel, and it just never interested me that much but then again i haven't read all the comics the grant morrison comics and all these other comics that john tells me will turn me on my head about superman so i'm looking forward to reading those but honestly i would say and this may sound like you know a little too self-referential but i will say that i really honestly this interpretation of superman nicholas cage as superman with tim burton's aesthetics I still wish we could have seen that. I mean, it really, it, this was a, a completely enlightening experience and such a unique take on the characters of Clark Kent and Superman. It wouldn't have been anything like I had ever perceived Superman as before. So um, that would have been really cool to see. Holly, of all the interviews that you guys participated in, 
what was your favorite one? I have a real soft spot for Sylvain. I do. Um, partly because Sylvain was one of those people who was so negative in emails back and forth uh, with John for a year or more. He would talk about the swirl. If you want me to talk about the swirl of Superman's cape, then you can forget about it. I have no interest in superhero films. Like, he was just really anti-superhero movies. Um, I had this completely formed picture of who this person was in my head before we actually met him and, and interviewed him, partially because John would do an accent every time, every time he would do an impression of Sylvain. He would do a French accent, and then he would also say, he's like, oh, this guy's really old, you know, he's been worked on a lot of movies. So when I met him, first of all, no accent, and he couldn't be more than a year older than John. So completely not the right, not completely wrong, different impression. Um, also, he was carrying a, a biography of Cindy Lumet under his arm, and I was like, we're going to get along quite well. Um, so talking to him, he's so articulate, uh, in cinematic history, he's so spot on with um, his knowledge of filmmaking and what goes into it. Because he worked on so many films, but he also has a passion for the medium. Um, to hear his, his opinions on what superhero films are doing uh, negatively or otherwise for the, the film industry right now was really fascinating. And he is deliciously sour. I mean, his... his <laughs> choice of words are just i mean it's poetry you know so it, it, you can you can hate him because he doesn't like the superhero genre but at the same time you, you got to love him as well because he's he's really fun to listen to yeah the main reason i really was dogged and would not give up because he basically said no three times and i mean he said yes and then no and then yes and then no and then yes <laughs> and then no and so the fourth time was the winner but the reason i would not give up is is exactly that reason his emails back and forth to me with with that you know that what holly already said the curl of superman's cape i just i was like can you please say that on film can i can i because it was the opposite of what i was getting and it was a it was a it was a it was something that was like i i also empathize with that feeling but i wanted someone to be able to say that who worked on the film it's like look not everyone's a superhero fan not everyone's into comic books and he actually is a was a working concept artist and felt like hey look we're we're not given any respect and um you know and he and he really had a very interesting take on the whole idea of what it is to be a concept artist and a designer in the world of film Another thing that was really interesting, too, and, and why it was so great to get him in there was because he was, like John said, he was one of the few dissenting voices. Um, you know, everyone who we interviewed is still working in the industry, and he was probably the only one who was willing to tell us no holds barred exactly what he thought without any kind of diplomacy, you know? So that was really refreshing because, you know, a lot of the concept artists we talked to are still working. They're working on movies right now. And, you know, they don't want to say anything that's going to be too inflammatory because they want their next paycheck. Right. You know, um, Sylvain is he doesn't give a fuck. You know, he was just like he's still working, by the way, but he's working in Europe. But um, but he's just he was it was nice to be able to get that kind of honesty um, from someone. Um, we got honesty from everyone. But, you know, people are going to be a little more tip. They're going to tiptoe around subjects uh, because they're scared for their jobs and and he didn't care yeah in fact he he wanted us to call him which we did yeah. an ex-concept artist so if you when you watch the credits next time look for the instead of just a concept artist ex-concept artist it was, i 
I still get a kick out of that. And I guess it's, it's kind of funny, like, uh, the way, you know, you, like I've, I've, I knew Sylvain for a couple of years before, uh, we even started this documentary. Um, I was just working on a project and he was working on another project right next door to me when I was working at this animation studio, Titmouse. And that's when I originally met him. So I guess like even the way I would describe him to Holly is like so different. <laughs> it's like, it is one of those funny things. I was expecting somebody that like was, gosh, like some cranky old foreign, uh-huh. like just somebody who just had n- nothing but hatred for for the comic book industry and for then for superhero and that was not what i got it that's that's a cool thing too and there's there's a long interview with uh sylvain and the extras there's also the whole sylvain on current cinema segment which which is one of our favorite um sequences because he really gets into it but um yeah i could go on for a long time about it he's really funny and really disarming and he's been very supportive of the film in fact one of the things just to wrap this up about sylvain one of the things that you know, he, he talks negatively about John Peters in the film. Uh, when I emailed with him recently, about two weeks ago, I said, so did you finally see it? He said, I, I finally saw it. I loved it. Um, he said, you guys have done a really, really wonderful thing. And I said, so what did, what did you think of John Peters? And he said, he said, honestly, he's the one who has the most heart of anyone in the film about this movie. He said, I love the guy. He's like, he, it completely changed his opinion on John Peters. And he worked with him. So uh, that was really refreshing. Yeah. I think uh, my favorite interview was uh, Tim Burton. Above and beyond the reason that it was Tim Burton's Superman Lives uh, and that, we, that he eventually you know, agreed to uh, meet us and then after we met him agreed to be interviewed for the film, it really feels like, uh, like he really uh, talked about the film uh, and wasn't guarded. And I feel like that to me was was uh, very refreshing on a lot of levels, but I felt like, uh, you know, especially after, you know, when you're interviewing anybody after the first like 10 or 15 minutes, the ice is broken and you either feel comfortable talking or you don't. And I feel like I, I was lucky enough to, uh, to get, I'd say almost everyone that, uh, I talked with, uh, to feel comfortable about talking about something that up until that point, they had felt very uncomfortable talking about with anyone, especially publicly. It was so, like Superman lives therapy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was like that with a lot of people, but specifically with, with, with Tim Burton, it felt like, uh, like, especially towards the end of the interview, we really got into a lot of the creative disappointments and the creative, uh, you know, fulfillments of, of, of a project like this that does, that never happened. What have been some of the more interesting reactions to the documentary? I think, uh, one of the most gratifying ones, uh, was at our premiere, one of the screenwriters, Wesley Strick, who was the second screenwriter uh, between Kevin Smith and Dan Gilroy. He was one of our earlier interviews, too. He was the first, was he the first screenwriter we interviewed? Yep. He was the first screenwriter we interviewed. And it had been many years since he talked about this. He didn't really even fathom why there would be any interest in it at all in the first place. But he, once he saw the film, he sent us an email a couple of days later that was just so incredibly heartfelt. And he he absolutely loved the film, but on the level of we were doing a service to Hollywood by making it, you know, by, by revealing what goes into the development process and showing how much work goes into something that never sees the light of day. He was, he really, really enjoyed it. And uh, that was really gratifying to hear from him. Of course, I can't, I can't synopsize what he said. He was incredible. He's a writer. So it was incredibly articulate. It was like poetry, this email, but that was very satisfying. That's been, that was definitely one of the highlights for me. 
I think the other thing, too, I, I think John would agree with me on this, is that the overwhelming response that people want to see Superman lives now has been not something we planned for or anticipated, but it gives people such a taste of what it might have been that people are almost sad at the end of it that they c- they can't see this film. So it, it's turned people's minds around on Nicolas Cage and Tim Burton and a lot of things. So that's that's been the overwhelming response that's been very heartwarming. You get an inside look into the creative process of of making a giant big budget Hollywood film by the people who actually make these giant big budget films from everywhere, everyone from the, the top producer and director all the way down to the storyboard artist or the concept designer. So, you know, uh, so to me, it's like you get a chance to see the creative process and then that creative process uh, stopped, you know, it's uh, halted. So that this happens with a lot of projects. And I guess a lot of people who are not uh, definitely people aren't, aren't part of the industry and are never, you know, they never get the chance to see this. So mainly when we do the, uh, the screenings and we do a Q and a afterwards, inevitably someone, will ask us, well, what do you think about, you know, Superman lives now, if it was made now, or if it was made as an animated film or something like that. And, uh, I think the first few times we got those questions, um, you know, I was like, well, I don't know. I mean, maybe it's possible to do it as an animated film. I definitely know it wouldn't be made as a live action film, but even after now, several months into doing these, uh, Q and A's and, and now that the film is officially a hundred percent done and on Blu-ray and, you know, having watched it multiple times and having a lot more time to think about it, um, I feel it shouldn't be made at all. I mean, I feel like uh, even as an animated film, it will never be what it was going to be in 1999. It's not going to be directed by Tim Burton and produced by John Peters and have a script by Dan Gilroy and have Nicolas Cage and Kevin Spacey and Christopher Walken. I mean, obviously, the, all those people are alive and you could put this together in some way, shape or form. The only way I would even see it as even a possibility as an animated film is if Tim Burton was going to direct it and they were going to get Dan Gilroy to finish his script. And, you know, all these things, even then, it would not be what it was going to be because it's 15 years, 16 years later. So I don't know. I think I think the the thing that people come away with after seeing the film is like, wow, this would have been so different. It's like, well, you know, that's what a lot of films are that are creatively pushing the boundaries of what's normal. Uh, really they, you know, people have to take a chance and a lot of chances, those don't happen anymore. So, you know, something that was from 1998 that was getting a chance being made. Now you don't even get that chance. So people who live now in the future of 2015 are like, you know, bummed out about seeing something that would have, when it came out, been like, Hey, they're here. We're trying a different take on Superman, but now it's like so over the top and crazy. I, I think it's just, we've gotten safer with our choices. Yeah, I do have to compliment you on your use of kind of the reenactments acting out of the different scenes. That could have gone so cheesy so easily, but I think that you handled it very well. Well, I'm happy to hear you say that. Some other people I've read reviews where they thought it was cheesy or whatever. But, uh, you know, it's it's, everyone has a different perspective and opinion, you know. Also, we had a crowdfunding budget. So, you know, there's... (laughs) We, we we did the best with what we had, and uh, it, I think it worked effectively. We didn't overuse it. We didn't overdo it. It was just there to sort of give you an idea of, of what it could have been. You mean you weren't rolling in money and lighting cigarettes <laughs> with $100 bills? Oh, boy, if we were. You know, I, but, you know, even if we were, I think it's it, it's it was definitely fun to do different kind of creative takes on each of those little recreation scenes. Like one was done in an animated style. The other was like a stop motion kind of like, you know, 
you know, Ray Harryhausen, Superman, you know, all of it was like, it all had like, you know, some designs influenced by Tim and his crew, but it was kind of like, you know, we're never going to get that big budget look. So let's try to be creative on different fronts. One of my favorite flourishes is uh, John's idea of, of having Tim's hands animate the hairstyles that he was uh, describing in the film. That was a little, it's like a little kind of throwaway moment, but it's, it's a use of animation that I think is kind of like, it's just perfect for Tim Burton. Now, I know you guys are just coming back from Australia. You've been running around with the film like crazy. What's next on the agenda? Where to next with the movie? What do we have in October? A lot. We have, uh, uh, at the end of October, we have Stan Lee's Kamikaze. Gosh, I think we have a couple more conventions before that. Maybe London. We're not sure yet. Yeah, but. so there's still, yeah, there's still a lot of stuff going on in October and November. And then uh, and then intermittently, we'll have some screenings happening, too. I'm trying to get a screening uh, uh, set up with the new Parkway in Oakland, because I'm a Bay Area gal. So I want to show it for my hometown peeps and uh, a couple other places so yeah we definitely want to do a screening in new york and chicago yeah. we just we haven't had that booked yet so that's it's probably a, it's a lot harder than you would think to get a screening in new york for yeah. some reason and uh we're we've been talking with a couple of different uh um companies as far as like i believe in december we'll have uh you know it'll be available to rent on different internet solutions so well right now you can buy or dig or get a digital copy of the film at our website, if you go to www.tdoslwh.com. Once again, that's that's a just short, the, the first letter of the death of Superman lives, the what happened. The initials of every yeah. title. So of it's tdoslwh.com, and you can uh, buy the Blu-ray or get the digital download of all the special, uh, the movie and all the special features and just watch it instantly. Well, John Holly, it's been a real pleasure talking to you guys. I love the movie, and I can't recommend it enough. Thanks, Mike. Thanks yeah. for talking to us. We enjoyed it. Yeah, really appreciate it. Thank you, Mike. Oh, also, people can follow us on Twitter, too. I want to make sure people know that we have a very active Twitter presence. We're at TDOSLWH. And Holly is at Holly K. Payne, and I'm at John Schnepp on Twitter. And I will be sure to link to those over at our website. Thanks, Mike. So we're back, and we're talking about the death of Superman Lives, what happened. And as we mentioned before the break, we definitely have a love of these kind of uh, what-if documentaries, these ill-fated movies, whether they came to fruition or not. And I'm glad we were talking about Kevin Smith before the break, and I'm glad that he kind of doesn't kid himself as far as his script being all that. Because having read his script, and I know that he was on Howard Stern years ago, and they were talking about how great his script was and everything, but really a lot of it hinges on a plot point that was right from The Simpsons when Mr. Burns builds a machine to blot out the sun, and he's going to charge uh, the people of Springfield for um, having sunlight, and that's very similar to what I, I think it was Lex Luthor or Brainiac, I can't remember which one, they uh, end up doing pretty much the same thing, because you know, I always forget that Superman is solar powered, and they were definitely playing that angle up quite a bit in these drafts of, uh, you know, how can we 
make Superman weak without using kryptonite, and the whole idea of denying him sunlight was one of those things. Simpsons did it! Simpsons did it! Ah! Don't have a cow, man! I, I remember like one of the first things I ever tried to find on the internet was, because I, I used to be quite the Kevin Smith fanboy, was his Superman live script. So I, you know, I found it and I, I, it may have been on like Drew scriptorama or something in the, in this is like 97, 98. I downloaded it and I read it and I was just like, Oh, this is, this is not so, not so great. And, uh, I, I was, I was kind of bummed out about that, but the, the idea of like the Superman reboot and relaunch for, for new age, really, it kind of took up some real estate in my mind. So, uh, and then like a few years later, when the one infamous picture of Nick Cage as Superman kind of was released and everyone was kind of like, Oh, this is, this is terrible. This is terrible. Uh, it, it gave the public a certain point of view as to what that movie would have been. And this documentary, one of its big strengths is that it shows, like, you really didn't know from that one picture what Superman Lives would have been. It, it would have been, you know, it's it's not, that one snapshot is not indicative of what this project, the potential it could have possibly had. And there were some interesting things that this movie gets into about Kay, which is kind of Superman's advisor, friend's security blanket, uh, and some really interesting ideas that I'd kind of like to see explored in a comic, you know? Uh, so th- th- this, this documentary has some things in it that really like, y- you may think, you know, what this, this Superman lives project would have been from the internet or from reading or hearing what Kevin Smith said about it, but you really don't know until you see like all the elements and all the balls that were in the air about this. And the way Schnepp puts them together is pretty great. I think. So just because this kind of an episode brings out our more nerdy listeners, I will just have to say that just so you know that K was kind of a later, like that was the renaming of the eradicator and the eradicator was in the Superman exile story arc. Just so you know, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm glad for me. I will say straight up, like I'm primarily an Archie Comics guy, followed by Marvel Comics. DC is is low down on my comic knowledge list, so I will I will own up to that. So I, I yes, I'm glad you told me that because that's something I would want to know. <laughs> Eradicator. Well, I will say that I knew nothing about Superman comics until a few years ago. Um, in issue 15 of Cashier's to Cinemart, I wrote about all of these drafts, all of these scripts that were floating around. And as part of that research, I was looking into some of the more popular or more signpost type Superman stories. So that's the only reason why I know some of these things is because of going back and, you know, let's read Red Sun, let's read Superman Exiled, let's, you know, of course I had already read the um, Whatever Happened to the Man of Tomorrow, right. So the the, the multiple, um, actually I think uh, Alan Moore wrote a couple of um Superman stories because there was that one and then there was another one where it was them trying to give him birth birthday gifts and that was interesting one anyway but 
so yeah, I I read up on a lot of Superman. I read up on all of these scripts and everything, and um, I think there was just like maybe one that I couldn't find, but otherwise that these were kind of floating out there in the uh, the internet and more in the uh, comic book convention circuit before people started really cracking down on selling scripts at, at uh, comic conventions, but. Yeah, that was uh, that was a nice thing. I have to say, I was very pleasantly surprised by the death of Superman Lives. What happened? Because you had mentioned before, this was a Kickstarter campaign, really, you know, funded by the people for the people kind of thing. And that first trailer that Schnepp released was garbage. It looked horrible, and it was one of those where when I saw that first trailer, I almost was like, can I get my money back? Because I thought this was going to be... You're talking about how this is a real documentary, it looks good, it flows, it has all this stuff. The preview made it look like it was going to be one of those cheesy YouTube type documentaries where it's just a bunch of you know computer-generated titles and just nothing going on with it and i was like oh my god this is going to be the worst thing in the world so i really went into this film with a lot of trepidation so when that final download finally came out you know my gift for being a contributor when that happened i was like oh man i'm almost afraid to push play yeah i mean it's a schnepp did a great job you know he uh again i can't i can't emphasize enough the fact of like how much Tim Burton is in here. And Schnepp asks all the questions you would want to know as a fan. Like, and a lot of times when fanboy, for lack of a better term, when fanboys try to, uh, try to make a documentary about a topic they love, their passion for it becomes its own downfall. There really isn't any of that in this, this movie. Like it's, it flows really nicely it really covers the whole history of the project and the major players, what went, what went wrong, uh, you know, what it could have been. And there's a lot of really great and exciting, like production art that's on display here. Uh, and as a fan of even movies, I don't like production art, like seeing some of this stuff is really, really, uh, really interesting. There's a lot of, there's a lot of really kind of exciting stuff on display for this in this documentary. I still don't think the finished product had it gotten made would have been anything truly great, but I'd like to hear the story about it and what went wrong and where, you know, ideas that were misguided, like, uh, like Peter's infamous giant spider, you know, um, so there, there's a lot of things in it that that really kind of are are compelling to the viewer. And again, it, this is not like a slap together documentary. This is a professional documentary that is done really engaging. It really flows nicely, and like even as kind of a um, a secondary Superman fan, like I found it pretty great from start to finish. Would this movie had it been made, would it have been better than Superman Returns? I don't think it would have been because it would have been this. I, I do feel that had it been made, it would have been this very kind of 90s type of Superman. And there's some footage of like Clark Kent wearing like, you know, a Mickey Mouse T-shirt. And I think Clark Kent would have been like cool or irreverent. 
and I, I feel like the script was just still packed with too much, too much stuff, uh, which seems to be a problem that Batman versus Superman is going to have uh, as well. But no, I, I mean, the problems I have with Superman Returns are essentially like Lex Luthor doesn't really do much, and the Superman's kid stuff is garbage, and Kate Bosworth is way too young to be Lois Lane. That's kind of my main issues with Superman Lives. Um, I, I, I feel like, I, I mean, with Superman uh, Returns, I feel like Superman Lives, had that gotten made, it would have just been kind of this weird curiosity, but I don't think it would have been a great film. So the story of Superman Lives, what happened, is still actually going on. It's beyond just the movie now because over the last few weeks, they've actually had comments from Nick Cage in you know different media outlets about Superman. Because of this documentary coming out and the popularity of it, people have started to ask Nick Cage these questions in interviews. So that's kind of, it's it's there. It's not in the documentary, but it's a little supplemental thing. And apparently there are eight hours of real supplemental stuff that you can get when it comes to this, either via download or on the Blu-ray, waiting for my Blu-ray to arrive. Hopefully it'll be pretty soon and can start checking out all this stuff because, yeah, he, Schnepp and Holly Payne, they worked on this project for a couple of years and there was just such a wealth of information. I can't even imagine... You know, you talked about the production stills and and um, models and these kind of things, and seeing some of that footage of Nick Cage or somebody um, flying, like with the ILM footage yeah. and everything. Oh my god, that looked good! Yeah, I was actually very surprised. It looked great, and that's stuff that I didn't even know existed. I feel like like John Schnepp and uh, like uh, John B. Davdar, who does like all the Star Wars documentaries that you find on Vimeo. I feel like I wonder why they aren't like why uh, these major studios haven't snapped them up to do like professional uh, supplementary documentaries because like their stuff is is great. Like they really do their research. And that is that is appreciated because he could have could have thrown this thing together. And like, because I've seen Kickstarter projects have just been thrown together and and done the medium amount of work because the the filmmaker doesn't have the ability to, the filmmaker doesn't have the resources or the ability to fulfill his vision. But there, that really isn't a problem here. So I, I really appreciate the amount of like work and research that went into this this documentary, and I, I like to see more projects like this for movies that weren't. Um, I know, I, I believe that uh, Davdar is working on a Back to the Future documentary right now, and I'm interested to see like what that turns into and if he's able to unearth any of the Eric Stoltz footage. Because I love these kind of alternate looks at movies either we didn't get or ones that hit, hit uh, theaters in a very different way than how they were originally envisioned. It's a real shame you talked about supplemental materials, and I think that that market is actually drying up, yeah. which is why we don't get that. Because you know we've we've actually had a few folks on here, and the guy who directed Lost Soul, David Gregory, he was a supplementary guy, and you know Jeffrey Schwartz was a supplementary guy, and 
that whole idea of a half hour special on a disc. You know, I think Daniel Bird is still doing those, and I think there are a few other people still doing those. But this whole idea of the you know streaming market is really drying that up. So Kickstarter is going to be the future for this stuff. Then, if you want to see the the making of this or that or the other thing, okay, you got to pay for it now. With these documentaries, and then you'll get it. Yeah, I mean, th- this is something that wasn't on my radar until recently, and uh, I'm I'm definitely glad it is. Like I'll. I, I know a few people who are really kind of hardcore into Superman that I'm going to I'm going to turn in this thing's direction just because it is um it's re- <laughs> like you mentioned the ILM footage that stuff blew me away like that looked that looked perfect like I think it looked better than the stuff that was in Man of Steel I mean this is it's there's there's some there's some like visual treasures in here for fans of Superman so just to put a bow on this stuff, I wanted to bring this up because, you know, I said that I had been um, writing about this stuff for a long time. And when I went to press with uh, Cashiers 15, this wasn't out yet. But if folks haven't seen the Superman slash Doomsday DC um, animated film, and those DC animated films are amazing. A lot of them are spectacular kind of stuff. There's one on Wonder Woman that is terrific. It is better than probably anything they're going to bring to the big screen. Stays faithful to a lot of the comic elements. And Superman Doomsday really was the impetus for you know the death of Superman story and Doomsday killing Superman was such the impetus for this reboot of the Superman you know, property and throughout all of this, you know, all, almost all of these scripts had a death of Superman, be it by doomsday, be it by Lex Luthor or Brainiac or Lexiac or whatever. And it never came to the big screen. I mean, we had Superman returns, which I can't remember if he dies. I think I only saw that movie one time just because it was so painful for me to watch. And I know he doesn't die in man of steel. And I don't know if he's going to die in Superman versus Batman or Batman versus Superman, whichever one it is. But he does die in this animated film, the Superman doomsday film. And what was even better is that at one point the uh what is that villain of uh superman's the the toy maker i think it is he shows up and he's got a giant mechanical spider (laughs) so we're throwing back to the john peters giant mechanical spider thing yeah and then when superman destroys it we have a guy down on the street looking up at this and that guy is voiced by Kevin Smith. That's terrific. Yeah. And he says, yeah, like we really needed him to bust up the mechanical spider. That's great. Perfect. Yeah. The way to wrap the whole arc up. That's terrific. I just want to say again, I think this is really kind of a fun, well-researched and executed documentary that film fans and Superman fans in general will find something worthwhile from. Yeah, if I wasn't all about how great I thought this documentary was, I wouldn't have been like, Chris, have you seen it? Let's get on the air. Let's talk about this thing, because this is one where I really want to help spread the word about it, because it is fantastic. Absolutely. And I am so glad that it is out there, so glad that he has done such a great job documenting the story behind this film, and really, it's this is one of those times where the story behind the movie or the story behind the movie that didn't get made is better than anything you could possibly put in a movie theater up on the big screen. I mean, this is the story behind the story is 
better than any movie that I've seen over the last year. I, I think that's that's really fair. I mean, this is this is a really fun and really well done documentary, considering he couldn't have had that huge of a budget, kickstarted or not. Uh, but yeah, everything is on screen, and it's a great looking documentary that has tons of information. So, Chris, it's been a while since you've been on the show. I think the last time he was for a Gremlins yeah. show. Yeah, Does that sound right? Yeah, yeah, that sounds about right. So, what have you you been up to? Uh, these days, you can find me. Uh, I do uh, a lot of writing for sites like Uproxx, uh, Celebrity, Den of Geek, and uh, Geekadelphia. Uh, I'm also one of the co-hosts and organizers of Nerd Night Philadelphia. And uh, I also uh, produce and run a show called Sci-Fi Explosion, which is a cosmic cabaret of craziness which with a bunch of weird video clips and uh, live performances. And uh, I'm going to be doing that event as part of New York Super Week in conjunction with New York Comic Con on October the uh, 8th. That's going to be at the Way Station in Brooklyn, which is Brooklyn's official Doctor Who bar. A day before, I'm going to be at the uh, Way Station again, hosting the Doctor Who costume and trivia contest. That's on October 7th. And that's basically uh, another New York Super Week Comic-Con event that uh, if you're a fan of Doctor Who, you're going to want to come out for because we're going to have trivia prizes and a lot of uh, Who stuff. And uh, as always, you can find me on Twitter at either Sci-Fi Explosion or Bionic Bigfoot. And what if I'm not a fan of Doctor Who? Should I still make it If you're not a fan of Doctor Who, I want to hear from you because uh, the more and more Stephen Moffat works on the show, the less of a fan of Doctor Who I become. Because, uh, yeah, he's wearing my patience these days. So, yeah, I would like you to come out because we can get into uh, some, some criticism about Doctor Who. I'm so glad to hear that you're not a fan of the Moffat Who because that is where I drew the line. Like, actually, it was the giant invisible chicken from outer space that was terrorizing Vincent van Gogh that I could not handle. That was it. It's, it's really gone downhill and fans. It's the most successful it's ever been in terms of audience. So no one will acknowledge that, but I, I feel like every true doctor who fan knows in their heart that the show just keeps getting shittier and shittier. And it's a shame because there's so many great, people working on the show. I love Peter Capaldi as the doctor. I just wish someone else was in charge of the show. And it, the show is just kind of, it's its creatively spinning its wheels at this point, I think. Well, it doesn't make any sense because I love Moffat's work. Yeah. You know, I, I love, love Coupling. I love Coupling. I love, oh, yeah. I love Jekyll. Jekyll. I amazing. love Jekyll, too. Yes. Uh, and, and like, I know the dude's a talent, but it, it seems almost like he hates Doctor Who. He's he's not interested in writing Doctor Who. He's interested in writing a fairy tale or whatever the hell else he's doing. But he seems yeah, to have keep very your little song. Keep your Amy Pond. Keep your fucking Rory. I don't give a shit about any of these people. Yeah. No, I have to. Uh, I have to agree with you on that one, Mike. People, maybe they should still come out for. Oh, they, Doctor they Who. absolutely still should because there's going to be uh, material for Doctor Who fans of all ages. I did this event last year uh, in New York, and the person who won uh, play who won the costume contest came as a monochrome uh, painted version of the Doctor's granddaughter, 
that's the greatest uh the greatest person we had last year. So people really give their their all for the costume contest portion of it. And uh it's it, it will be it will be a lot of fun and we'll have Doctor Who themed prizes and maybe a special guest or two. So, yes. Coming out to both of those events. And uh if you ever want to see a grown man uh and someone who's dressed like Skeletor talk about the book Letters to ET, then go see Sci-Fi Explosion cuz that's going to happen. <laughs> Well, thanks again, Chris, for coming on the show. Thanks to our guests, and thank you for listening. So if you want to give us some feedback about this episode, you want to tell me the true story of the Eradicator and what is your favorite incarnation of Superman, you want to tell us how great Superman Returns is, you want to talk about how much you dislike Man of Steel, which I know it's. I was so surprised that you said that you're a Man of Steel fan, Chris. I have issues with it, but I don't think it's terrible. It's not like, like, it's not Superman 4 bad. But I, I just, again, I don't really have anything vest- invested in the DC Cinematic Universe either. I think, uh, I think Superman vs. Batman looks atrocious. And I think Suicide Squad, Squad looks atrocious too. So, yeah. If they stick to the Miller, I think they'll be okay with Su- Batman vs. Superman. But the farther they get away from Frank Miller, the worse it's going to be. And again, talking about those DC animated films, there's a DC animated version of The Dark Knight Rises, or sorry, The Dark Knight Returns. Just check it out. Yeah, I enjoyed that. I enjoyed that a lot. Yeah. Because it was faithful, and yeah. it, it looks great. I'm looking forward to the killing joke they're doing, with apparently Mark Hamill as the, as the voice of the Joker. I'm all about that. I even like the Tales from the Black Freighter uh, one they did. I'm trying to remember which one that was. Was that the from the Watchmen? Yeah, yeah it was like the Watchmen okay. spinoff that they did. So you know, only that was actually supposed to be part of the movie. Right. Yeah, I in, think. in not the director's cut, but there was it was available on DVD for a little bit where they did incorporate bits of it into Watchmen. I never saw that version of Watchmen, um, but I, I have seen the theatrical and the director's cut. But I never saw like the complete version of it or whatever they called it. Hey Chris. Yes. There's fan edits of the Watchmen. Oh, I want I want to see I would like to see that. There you go. Yeah. yeah, I would like to see that. Well, if you want to get a fan edit of your favorite film, go over to fanedit.org. If you want to leave us some feedback, go over to projection-booth.com. We would love to hear your questions, comments, and or criticisms of the show. And uh yeah, definitely uh keep those hate letters coming.
himself to carry on forget Krypton and keep going Super 
any money to see the world from Sodom and Grundy. And sometimes I despair the world will never see another man like him. Tarzan was king of the jungle and lord over all the apes, but he could hardly string together four words. I Tarzan, Jane. Sometimes when soup was stopping crimes I'll bet that he was tempted to just quit and turn his back on man Join Tarzan in the forest But he stayed in the city Kept on changing clothes and dirty old phone booths Till his work was through Yeah, nothing to do but go home, home Superman never made any money Saving the world from Sodom Sometimes I despair the world will never see another man like him. And sometimes I despair the world will never see another man like him.
I'm not that naive. I'm just out to find the better part of me. I'm more than a bird. I'm more than a plane. I'm more than some pretty face beside a train. It's not easy to be me. I wish that I could cry, fall upon my knees, find a way to lie, but a home I'll never see. It may sound absurd, but don't be naive. Even heroes have the right to bleed. I may be disturbed, but won't you concede? It's not easy to be me. Up up and away, away from me. Well, it's alright. You can all sleep sound tonight. I'm not crazy. Stand to fly. I'm not that naive. Men weren't meant to ride with clowns between their knees. I'm only a man in a silly red sheet, digging for kryptonite on this one-way street. Only a man in a funny red sheet. Looking for special things inside of me, inside of me, inside of me, inside of me, inside of me. It's not easy. If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.